Amen. Okay, we're going to be in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The angel of the church in Ephesus write, this is called the works of the Nicolaitans. The, the angels of the church in Ephesus, the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, I want you to know that I'm going to be focusing on a secondary issue in this letter, not the primary issue. The primary issue is you've left your first love, get back to your first love. But the secondary issue, and what I felt like the Lord talked to me about, was the work of the Nicolaitans. And not only the work of the Nicolaitans, but the fact that Jesus hates the work of the Nicolaitans. Now, how many of y'all know that God is love? So a lot of people struggle with that. If God is love, how can he hate? Well, actually, if you were, I, I preached a message before called The Fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. That means you respect and you reverence who God is and what he approves and what he doesn't approve, right? Uh, so how can the Lord hate? And that's kind of what, what we're getting into. And it's not so much how the Lord can hate, but what does God hate? And that's what we're going to look at in this message. So the little background, the Apostle John was on the Isle of Patmos because of his proclamation of Jesus and the good news of the kingdom of God. The empire uh, was tired of him. He's tired of his pro proclaiming, tired of his preaching. He was uh, turning the, the Roman world upside down. And so they wanted to get rid of him. They tried to kill him. Uh, specifically, they tried boiling him in oil. Uh, but he wouldn't cook. He wouldn't die. Right? Now, just, just thinking about that. Wonder what kind of oil they use, because you know we're like, should I use olive oil, coconut oil? You know, uh, we would probably boil them coconut oil today, but back then it was probably olive oil, whatever. All right, he wouldn't cook, so they couldn't kill him, so they put him on the Isle of Patmos, and the Isle of Patmos was an island, uh, a, a kind of a deserted island. They only sent uh, people that were criminals there, and basically they got him away uh, from where he could do any kind of harm as far as they were concerned so it was while he was here on the island the lord appeared to him gave him this letter not the letter to the ephesians but the letter that they call the revelation the whole thing was a letter sometimes we think that he gave a certain letter to ephesus a certain letter to uh, to to smyrna a certain letter to philadelphia no that's not true he gave him the whole letter of revelation and it's the revelation of jesus christ but he wanted specific things said to specific churches that he was sending the letter to. Okay? And so in this letter, Jesus gave specific instructions to seven churches which happened to be located on a trade route. And you might think to yourself, well, why uh, should, should I read this today? It doesn't mean anything to me today other than, you know, some of the stuff that people are saying that could be China, it could be uh, uh, the Huey uh, helicopters, it could be this or whatever. It doesn't really mean anything to me. And it was spoken to them. Yeah, but the Bible says, whoever has ears to 
hear, let him hear. Right? And so I believe that there are things, just as in all of Scripture, there are things that God wrote that we need to apply to our lives as well, and they are applicable to our lives. So what we want to look at today is in the, in, to the church of Ephesus, uh, what we can learn from what he said to them was not only uh, get back to your first love, but what we want to look at specifically today is what were the deeds of the Nicolaitans? So the first question we have is, who were the Nicolaitans? And by the way, I've always said Nicolaitans, but I was reading it and I realized I was saying it wrong. Nicolaitans is what it says. However, uh, that being said, I have something so ingrained in my mind, don't be surprised if I say Nicolaitans. No. All right, so uh, again, Revelations 2 and 6, specific verse we're going to look at. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So who were the Nicolaitans? These people were said to be the heretical followers of Nicholas of Antioch. Uh, who was Nicholas of Antioch? He was one of the chosen seven described in the book of Acts whenever they were having a problem with passing out food to the widows, and they brought it to the apostles, and the apostle says, look, we can't be involved in preaching the word and also serving tables, so pick seven men among yourselves who we can uh, uh, assign to this ministry. The Bible says in Acts 6 and 5, this pleased the multitude. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. And it very specifically describes Nicholas as being a proselyte from Antioch. So the Bible tells us that Nicholas was a proselyte. What was a proselyte? Well, that means he wasn't born a Jew. He didn't have uh, years and years of training and teaching in the Jewish heritage, the Torah. He didn't know any of that. But somewhere along the line, he was exposed to the Jewish uh, 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 scriptures, to the Jewish God. He converted from paganism to Judaism. And then while he was in Judaism, he heard the gospel and he experienced a second conversion, this time turning from Judaism to Christianity. Unfortunately, he also converted again, not away from Christianity, but he began to follow an errant teaching that Jesus himself said was heretical. I hate the works of the Nicolaitans. So knowing who Nicholas was, what were the works that Jesus hated? That's the second thing we want to look at. Uh, uh, is Jesus? Well, we'll look at that in a minute. What we want to focus on this point is that Jesus hated the works of the Nicolaitans. What caught my attention was that Jesus actually used the word hate. He used the word twice just in this particular chapter when he referred to the teachings and deeds of a group of erring spiritual leaders that were known as Nicolaitans. What is important to state from the outset is that Jesus did not hate the Nicolaitans. What he hated was their works. Now understand that. Jesus loves people. What he doesn't love is some of the works that people do. In fact, it reminds me of scripture, we don't have that in, in there, but it reminds me of the scripture in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where people talk about the wrath of God, and, and the Bible says in Romans 1, 18, and this is New Testament, it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against, now some people read it this way, ungodly and unrighteous men, and it doesn't say that. It says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So it's not people, it's the works 
that they do, that the, the wrath of God is against, who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And in this particular case, it's important that we understand that there are some works that Jesus hates, right? In our text, the word hate is from the Greek word meseo, which means to hate, to abhor, or to find utterly repulsive. It describes a deep-seated animosity to something that one finds to be completely objectionable. A person experiencing this level of hate not only loathes the object of his animosity, but he rejects it entirely. This is not a just a dislike. It is a case of actual hatred. Christ didn't hate these individuals, but he certainly hated what they were doing and teaching. And this reminds me of another scripture in Proverbs chapter 6. And I don't know if you know these things, but it says here in Proverbs 6.16, there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, that means proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. So, uh, is, just so you know that God does have a strong dislike more than that, a hatred towards certain behaviors. Now, that brings up the third point, which I think is important. What were the Nicolaitans doing? What were their works? It's been suggested that the Nicolaitans are the same people as the people in Pergamos who followed the teaching of Balaam. Why is this important? I'll tell you here in a minute, but let me set this up. It doesn't say in this particular letter, at this particular instance mentioning it to the Ephesians what the works of the Nicolaitans are oh no we're in trouble how do we know if we're doing those things how do we know that this is happening well in Revelations 2 the same letter he speaks again to the church at Pergamos and when he's talking to Pergamos he says I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the, the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. And you might say to yourself, well, wait a minute, that's not the same as the Nicolaitans. You're talking about Balaam. What does that have to do with the Nicolaitans? Well, I'm going to explain it to you. Thank you for asking that question. Your inquiry, your query has been heard. Nicholas can be derived from the two main Greek words meaning uh, that come from the word laos, which means people, and nikon, which means to conquer. So it's Greek translation. It means to conquer the people. Balaam can be derived from the Hebrew words om and Baal, which means exactly the same thing, to conquer the people. So the two names could really be the same thing, only one name is speaking, referencing it to in Greek, and the other name is referencing to it in Hebrew. And if that is the case, which I believe it is, then what the works of Balaam were are the same things that were happening with the Nicolaitans. Are we good? Okay, so what the two faults of these same heretics were the same. 
So, God wants to make sure, in highlighting the teaching of Balaam, he wants to make sure that we understand the doctrine that the Nicolaitans taught, so Balaam's actions are given as an example of their doctrine and their actions. So who was Balaam? Balaam was a prophet, and apparently he was a very successful prophet in the eyes of the people around him, but he wasn't an Israelite prophet, he was a Moabite prophet. And he was hired in the Old Testament, he was hired by one of the enemies of Israel, a king by the name of Balak, who Israel was coming through his territory, and he wanted Balaam to come and curse them so that he could then be victorious over the Israelites. Now, he wouldn't have uh, sent people to hire him to do this if he hadn't had success in the past doing it. You're hearing what I'm saying? Unfortunately, when it came to the Israelites, because God is over all, and there is no God higher than God, when it came to the Israelites, he couldn't curse them, but he was only able to bless them. So when Balaam could not successfully curse the people of God, he figured out another way to get them to curse themselves. And he instructed Balak how to do that. He taught Balak how to get them into sin and thereby curse themselves. And by the way, in that, I could preach, I, mean, I could really preach on that a little bit. The enemy has no authority over you in Christ. So, how is it that these things keep happening to me through deception, through enticements? What he does is he tries to get you to do things that are contrary to God's word. And when you do things that are contrary to God's word, you come out from under the protection of God. And when you come out from under the protection of God, then he has full, uh, full uh, uh, availability to do what he wants in your life. And that's really what he's teaching Balak. I can't do anything to them, but get them to sin. And then you can have victory over them and it says in numbers 25 1 through 3 how he did that now israel remained in acacia grove and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of moab the women of moab invited basically the people or the men specifically to the sacrifices of their gods and the people or the men ate and bowed down to their gods and the reason i'm saying men is because i want you to see here israel was joined to the people of baor and the anger of the lord was aroused against israel what was happening was is that the men would go over and was participating in idolatry because uh, balak was dangling the beautiful women before the men and of course in these feast there was wine there was food there was all sorts of things that your mind can take you where you want to go but the reality is when they began to serve other gods and to practice immorality then they came out under the protection of god and balak now had the opportunity to uh, be victorious over the israelites thankfully the israelites Repented. But we learned something from that. Second Peter 2.15. They have forsaken the right way. He's talking about people that have gone away from the church and have gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Because really what we want to get back to is we want to get back to Balaam. So Balaam was hired to curse the people. And if you go back and read the story, he was after the money. What moved his heart was financial gain. 
personal profit. That's what he wanted. So when he couldn't uh, curse the people, no money for you, no reward for you. So Balaam says, I think I found another way. If you'll do this, then they can curse themselves, and the implication is, I get my money. Right? So that's why it says, uh, he followed the way of Balaam, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. All right, so what he was doing was he was teaching how to do things that were in error so that he could gain from it. Okay, so he did what he was doing for the sake of his own personal gain. Just as Balaam was teaching how to get the people of God to compromise, so too the Nicolaitans were teaching the people in the church how to compromise. And the reason they were teaching the people how to compromise is for personal gain. Not gain monetarily, but gain in the sense that if I learn another way, it won't cost me. You understand? Sometimes gain is not to lose anything. We live in a, we live in a time right now where how many of y'all remember just two years ago we were paying $1.88, $1.78, for a gallon of gas. And I believe today it's probably between four and five dollars for a gallon of gas. Now how many of you know you have lost something? Right? If you were to go back to a dollar eighty-eight, you wouldn't have gained any more income, but you would have gained something. Right? So what these people, the Nicolaitans, were doing is they were trying to prevent from losing something and not losing caused them to have personal gain. So it was selfish what they were teaching, but what it was doing, it was teaching the people of the church an errant teaching that would lead to unrighteous behavior. Now, in their time and culture, this is what was happening. In order to work, one had to take a vaccine. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with taking the vaccine. I'm just trying to make it relevant for today. You hear what I'm saying? Because there was about to be an issue where people that didn't want to take the vaccine were going to have to make a decision. Do I take the vaccine against my own personal convictions or do I not take the vaccine? Now, if you don't have personal convictions against taking the vaccine, not a problem for you. Nobody's saying anything different. All we're trying to do is make it relevant. You hear what I'm saying? So in that particular culture, in order to work, one had to be involved in a guild. What would we call a guild today? What, are the, what do they say when the welders get together? Is it called the welders union? They have a pipe fitters union? What other kind of unions do they have? Boiler makers union, electrical, electricians union, those, huh? Worship leaders union? No. <laughs> Credit union, okay. So, the different unions required that people go to the meetings that they were having, and at these meetings, every union had its own personal idol. Right? So at these union meetings, they would have to sacrifice to the idol and participate by eating meat that was sacrificed to the idol. And guess what else happened during these meetings? These same women that were in Moab were here too. Because part of idolatry at that particular time, it was really wrapped up with sexual immorality. 
okay? And so if you were going to bow down to the idol, you had to practice sexual immorality. Well, guess what? These things are contrary to what it means to be a Christian. But the problem was, if they didn't go along, they were going to be banned from the union, they were going to be banned from the guild, and if they were banned from the guild, they were at risk of not. In fact, many people actually went to a place where they went through very great scarcity and had no means of providing for their family because if you didn't belong to a trade union, if you didn't belong to a guild, you weren't allowed to work. Right? What do you do in those particular times? Well, you know... Do you stand up for God and refuse to bow down? There's a lot of history uh, where people refuse to bow down. Uh, 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 Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you need to bow down to this idol. If you don't bow down to this idol, we're going to throw you in the fire. And they said, we don't have to talk about this. There's no discussion here. We're not bowing down, right? We're not going to bow down to this idol, whatever it may come. Now, I want you to know that in that crowd, there were probably other Jewish people that did bow down. Doesn't say, but there probably were. Why are we talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Because they refused to bow down, and they paid a price for it. But they didn't know they were going to be delivered from the fire until they stood up. Right? And what was the presentation? If you don't go along right, then you're not going to belong to the union and you're not going to be able to feed yourself, your family, pay your rent, your mortgage, your car, everything that you need. None of that is going to be there, so you might as well bow down. But the Lord says this, and here comes the Nicolaitans and say, well, is he really saying that? Does God really want you to starve? Does God really want you to go without a job? Does God really not want you to pay for your family? Maybe we need to look at this a little bit different. And so the Nicolaitans were teaching them that you didn't really mean it. You, didn't, you knew there was no idol. You knew there was no God. You don't really, it doesn't really mean anything to you. You believe in God. You believe in all this kind of stuff. So whether you bow down to an idol or you participate in some of these extracurricular activities, it doesn't really mean a whole lot anyway. It's okay to do that because God knows you don't really mean it in your heart. That's what they were teaching, right? In other words, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was that it was all right to have one foot in both worlds and that one didn't need to be so strict about separating from the world to be a Christian. Luke 9, 24, Jesus said, whoever desires, desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This doctrine of the Nicolaitans led to a weak version of Christianity that was without power and without conviction. While it is true that the Christian possesses perfect liberty, it's also true that the Christian can never do what he likes. He must always do what God likes. Grace does not empower you and free you to sin. Grace empowers you to live righteously for God. There's a false teaching about grace today that since you're under grace, it doesn't matter what you do. Hello, doctrine of the Nicolaitans. What does the text say? Christ hated what they were teaching, which was a doctrine of compromise and inclusiveness. 
So I want to look at, real quickly, these two things. Compromise. Just as the men of Israel compromised themselves, now the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was encouraging compromise. When believers allow sin and compromise in their lives, it drains the power of the work of the cross in their life, and it drains the power of the spirit that is resident in a believer's life. The evil fruit of Nicholas's doctrine encouraged worldly participation, leading people to indulge in sin and a lower godly standard. Just as Balaam's teaching conquered the people, so too Nicholas's teaching conquered, another word of saying conquered, defeated the people. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Right? Are we good with this? You want to teach something else? You can want, but this is what the Lord put on my heart, so I'm going to teach it anyway. <laughs> Second thing it encourages is inclusiveness. Now, inclusive in and of itself is not a bad word, but in the context that we're looking at, we need to understand what it means. According to an inclusive, this, in, this type of inclusive mindset, everyone is right and no one is wrong. Those who practice spiritual compromise generally believe that Christ is just one of many acceptable types of faith. The big issue to them is not truth, but respect. As such, truth takes a second seat to equally honoring the beliefs of other people, even if those beliefs are diametrically opposed to the doctrines of the Bible. Ultimately, Christ is demoted in their minds and is viewed as just one option among many. Unfortunately, this doctrine has reemerged in recent years. In the Christian world today, there are spiritual leaders who, like the Nicolaitans of the past, seek a dangerous truce, truce with the world under the guise of inclusiveness and compromise. Many of these spiritual leaders once held strong doctrinal positions upholding the Bible as true and absolute, but over time they've shaped their beliefs to meld with the changing moral climate of society, and in the process they produced a gospel very different from the one presented in the Bible. And why do they do this? To avoid persecution, to avoid being unfollowed on Facebook, to avoid... Uh, being disliked and to gain favor, to gain fame, to gain money, not from God, but from the people. So why are they doing this? For personal gain. Hebrews 13 and 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Truth does not change. You're, out, you're not relevant anymore, Pastor. Things have changed. Truth evolves. That's one of the things that people are saying today. Truth evolves, right? That's what they understood in that culture. But today we know that uh, same-sex attraction is a genetic thing. They didn't know that back then. And so therefore, we have to realize that God is okay with that because science is teaching us something different. Do you think that the God of the universe doesn't know Right? I mean, the argument as presented from that side sounds correct until you hear the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord is absolute. You do not get to negotiate with God on what is true. 
We are called ambassadors of the kingdom. An ambassador does not get to make policy or change policy. His only job is to represent the policy of the government that they represent. We serve the kingdom of God. We serve a king. And it is his policy that we do not change. We do not get to compromise. But we represent. And if somebody has a problem with that, we don't need to be mean about it. We don't need to be uh, uh, vengeful or hateful about it. But we don't have to compromise we say hey look I understand how it is that you feel about this but I don't make policy I only describe what the policy of my government is the Bible says the Bible says right Today, just as before, whenever believers take a firm stand on absolute truth, they are viewed by the world as intolerant. But when it comes to the eternal truth of God's word, there is no room to soften or adapt one's beliefs. We must continue to espouse and hold on to the true teachings of the word of God. Now, okay, so in conclusion, a little, little longer conclusion, but what are the signs that point to a rise of Nicolaitans, Nicolaitanism today? Well, first of all, there's no emphasis on living holy and being separated from the world. Right? We are called, now, now let's make sure we understand this. We're called to be in the world. We're not supposed to separate ourselves from worldly people. Right? We're supposed to be in contact with them because a, a physician needs to be around people that are sick. The reason we're supposed to be around worldly people, though, is not to contract their disease. What is their disease? The same one we were delivered from, sin. We're not to be around them to contract sin. Listen, if you're hanging around people and they, you get to a place where they're influencing you more than you're influencing them, then you need to cut that off. And that's good teaching for your kids as well. It's okay for them to have uh, uh, friends that are not Christians because that's how they get saved. But if at some point their friends are having more influence on your kids than your kids on them, then you need to cut that off. Right? Because we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. Right? Uh, uh, what does 1 John say? The love of the... Uh, um, 1 John chapter 2, let me turn there real quick. I think it's chapter 2, verse 9. All right. 1 John 2. Got to fill in. Primer Juan dos. Right? Um... Do not love the world, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You hear what I'm saying? The love of the Father. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides Ever. So what can we learn from that? Practice the things of the world. You don't get to, you're not in relationship with God. You don't have the love of God in your hearts. And so you may think you're a Christian, but if you're living like the world, you may want to reconsider that statement. You will know them by their fruits. You hear what I'm saying? 
Modern Nicolaitanism dresses itself in the form of inclusivity. Rather than living separately from the world, those who espouse this view reason, since everyone is right and no one wrong, both spiritually and morally, why should there need to be a need for separation? Leading denominational churches have taken the position that the time has come to help lesbians and homosexuals blend into the church community and lead a different form of holy life with other church members. This sentiment mirrors the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They promoted a message that will make them more acceptable with the multitude instead of one that will put them in opposition with the expectations of modern society. All right. Now, what are you saying? That we shouldn't let homosexuals come into the church? No, absolutely not. We want them to come to church. But we don't justify the lifestyle. You hear what I'm saying? At some point, you're either going to change or you're going to get mad at me. Or you're going to get mad at the church. Because we're not, we, we're intolerant. We want, but everybody in the world, but the government and all these kind of saying, all this kind of stuff. I don't know about that government. I just know about this government. We love you. We want you to be a part of the community of God, but we're not going to accept sin and compromise what sin is just to have you be a part of us. Because at some point, that's what Paul, Paul said in, in, in his book in 1 Corinthians, he said, get rid of that sin. Get it out of your midst. You can't, you can't allow it to take root because then if it takes root, then all of a sudden those, the new generation come in, those come in, they, they say it's okay. And it's not. And, you say, and it's not just about the community. We're talking about your souls. We're talking about your relationship with God. You cannot be a friend of God and a friend of the world at the same time. There has to be a change. He that would come after me, Jesus said, must deny himself, take up his cross, and that means a cross is you're going somewhere you don't want to go. You've got to crucify your flesh and the desires thereof and follow after him. I'm making sense to you. Right? So, um, um, the second point that we bring up. So, first of all, no emphasis on living holy separated from the world. Second point, no emphasis on the doctrinal teaching of the Bible. Now, we're talking about Bible doctrines. We're not talking about denominational doctrines. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. They're, this, they're one and the same. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they're not. Okay? I think you did just did a study on Hebrews chapter uh, chapter 6, and then you had the fundamental uh, teachings that every Christian needed, and that's what we would consider a biblical doctrine. Jesus Christ is uh, the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father except through him. Biblical doctrine. I'm making sense to you, right? But some other things, they're not, it's not that they're not important, but there are some things that are primary and some things that are secondary. Okay, we're talking about the primary things. No emphasis on doctrinal teaching of the Bible. Modern Nicolaitanism dresses itself in the form of progressiveness, dismissing much of the Bible as being too restrictive or exclusive of other people's beliefs. Today, this trend is so widespread that the basic tenets of the Christian faith are largely not known by most church givers, especially by those who are younger. Basic Bible doctrines such as the virgin birth, the sinlessness of Christ, yes, you would, you would be surprised that some people don't believe that Christ was without sin. Sin, salvation, holiness, and eternal judgment are often unknown or inadequately taught or considered optional. Thus, true doctrinal teaching of the Bible is diminished, replaced by different variants of watered-down, politi politically correct instruction. Third thing, is there no there's no emphasis on absolute truth or absolute biblical morality. Modern Nicolaitanism dresses itself in the form of being open-minded. 
It cries that it's unfair and unjust to assert that beliefs alone are the absolute foundations for truth. It's not just what you believe. It's my experience is my truth. Have you ever heard people say, that's not my truth? Right? They can look at this and say, well, I understand, but that's not my truth. And so what are they basically saying? They're basically saying that truth, which is what God says his word is, is not really true. What's true is what I believe to be true. And in some sense, in your world, what you believe to be true is truth, but not in God's. And this world doesn't belong to you. This world belongs to the Lord. Right? Okay, so even if we believe what we believe, it makes allowances that we may be wrong or that others are equally right, but with a different approach. To demonstrate how deeply this damaging influence has already permeated the church, it is a statistical fact that more than half of evangelical Christians do not believe in absolute truth. Fourth thing, no exclusionary belief that Christ alone is the way to heaven. Modern Nicolaitanism dresses itself in the form of tolerance, asserting that everyone has a piece of the truth. If followed to its logical conclusion, it eventually leads to a, a doctrine, a false heretical doctrine, and yes, it is heretical, called universalism, which is the belief that everyone and everything will ultimately be reconciled to God. Okay, there's two forms of that. There's universalism that says that uh, it doesn't matter whether they believe in Christ or not believe in Christ. Every religion has a piece of the truth. They're like spokes on a wheel, and they all get to the middle somehow, some way. All right? But then there's an there's a, there's a added one to that, a subset of that, called Christian universalism. And Christian universalism teaches this. It says that because of Jesus' work on the cross of Calvary, which we all agree with, right? Salvation is made available to all, which we all agree with, whether they embrace it or not, right? There is no hell anymore. There's only heaven. Whether you ever get taught about Christ, whether you even want to believe in Christ, God is so good, which he is, that he's going to save you anyway. Whether you believe it or not, whether you have faith or not, the only problem with is is that if you believe that from the very beginning, you're taking away the whole reason for the history of God and his people is that he thought the most important thing for us to have was free will. And in the guise of, we don't want anybody to go to heaven, or I'm, I, don't, I can't believe that my relatives who were good people would be in hell. I mean, we don't want anybody to go to hell, or I can't believe that my relatives who were good people could possibly be in hell. How could God allow something like that to happen? God didn't allow something like that to happen. He sent His only Son to be crucified on the cross that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but he have eternal life. Well, why did this happen? It wasn't God's fault. Well, they never had an opportunity to hear. How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach without a, unless they were sent? God is not the one that's at fault. Jesus is not the one that's at fault. If people aren't hearing, the fault lies in the hands of this church. Right? But there's people way over here. That, there are tribes, and that's the argument. There are tribes that have never heard about Jesus. Well, I don't believe it's because the Holy Spirit isn't talking to somebody to go. When we recognize that there is no other way but Jesus, 
and no one is going to go to heaven unless they respond to the gospel, then it becomes more imperative for us to say, Lord, here am I. Send me. Right? There, these are the primary signs of modern Nicolaitanism. These faulty beliefs reveal doctrinal, doctrinal ignorance and result in a powerless, powerless, weakened version of Christianity where sin is tolerated, separation is ignored, and the need for ongoing repentance is disregarded. Jesus hated the works and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And I don't believe his attitude has changed at all. Now, please don't misunderstand me. He doesn't hate people. He loves people. But he hates sin. And he hates things that destroys people. And this kind of teaching, this doctrinal compromise, this heretical uh, teaching destroys people, the people of God, that he wants to become strong. And how do we become strong? We become strong in his word and in the power of his might. He hated the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And although the Bible instructs us to love everyone, we must think like Jesus thinks when it comes to any kind of teaching that results in a diluted, powerless, compromised version of Christianity. If we're to be like Jesus, what Jesus loves, we must love, but equally, what Jesus hates, we must hate. Okay, now I know this was a different kind of message. It wasn't really a, you know, it was more of an informative type of message to kind of tell you, but I want you to be understanding and aware of who God is. We serve an awesome God. He is not a president that we can get rid of if we don't like him. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. We can't request an alternate a uh, 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 trial somewhere else if we don't want to sit before God at the, at the end of time everyone will stand in the presence of God and everyone will be judged by God and what is this judgment? what did you do with my son Jesus? do you honor him? do you follow him? are you willing to lay down your life to embrace my son's teachings, my son's work, my son's desires, my son's wills, or are you not? And that's easy. Or are you wanting to compromise the work of my son on the cross of Calvary, the power that he paid a price to release in his body, uh, that we might become overcoming, uh, we might become victorious followers, empowered followers of Christ in this world, if we're not willing to do things his way, then we are living in compromise. And if we're not careful, listen, and let me just say this because I'm done. We've had people come in this church from time to time and their teaching is not quite what I would like. And it's not necessarily error, but let me just use an easy one. Legalism. A lot of people in the church get caught up in legalism. And they'll try to tell you why we need to be having church on Saturday, why we shouldn't be having church on Sunday, why we need to be doing this, why we need to be doing that. And you know, at first I was like, I need to do something about it. But I felt the Lord tell me, no, every service accountable to his own master. So when do I get involved? When they try to get other people in that form of doctrine. If you want to practice that for yourself, totally up to you. You can do whatever you want. But if it begins to affect the church, then we're going to deal with it. 
You know what I'm saying? So there's a lot of um, activism on the part of, let's just use the LGBTQ community. There's a lot of activism on that part. And that's fine. They're welcome to do whatever they want. They can be active. They can try to change things, you know? And so, wait a minute. Are you giving them permission to do that? Our government gives them the per permission to do that. But we have just as much permission to be active as well. Why are they effective? Somebody once said, I don't know what the statistics are now. Well, somebody once said that 3% of society is uh, LGBTQ. Now, it might be becoming more in, in, in recent days, but it's not as much as many as you think. But did you know that those 3%, when the statistics came out, those 3% uh, uh, totally, uh, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They drove the culture of the day and what was right and what was wrong. You know why? Because they were active. And you know why they were having a voice? Because the church lost its voice. You know, if John Newton wasn't active, we'd still be in slavery today. If William Wilberforce wasn't active, we'd still be in slavery today. I want you to know that God expects us to be proactive for truth. And what God says is true. Now, I've talked to some people throughout the weeks, and, and uh, one of the things, uh, you know, God's not a Democrat, that's not a Republican. It's true. He's not. But he's a God of truth. And so well, we shouldn't be telling people how to vote. We shouldn't. But we should be telling them about kingdom values. And you should be voting as a Christian, because if we don't vote, there are people that, don't, that do. And when we uh, vacate our place, the Bible says you should put your light on a lampstand. When we vacate our place and hide under a bushel, what happens? There's no light. And guess who prevails? You know where the enemy traffics? In darkness. You know why the enemy's had success? Because the Christians have hidden their lights under a building. Under a bushel. And they become ineffective. Right? And so what, 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 what are we trying? We've got to use our voice. Well, are you telling us we need to vote Democrat or Republican? No, I am telling you need to vote. Who should I vote for? Kingdom values. Don't vote for a political party. Vote for kingdom values. What can't? Well, how do I know? Guess what? You're going to have to do the work. You're going to have to do the research. We might have places where you can go where they've already done that, but the bottom line is if 50% of the, uh, or more of the society, we'll just talk about Texas as Christian, why is it being dominated by unrighteous value systems? Because the Christians are not standing up. The Christians are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And you know what? That's in some ways accommodating to the culture. Believing the lie. It's all going to work out in the end, right? And maybe the Bible says that he's coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle. He's not coming back for an ineffective uh, baby, immature bride. He's coming back for a bride that is ready, potent, strong, standing firm, living holy lives and teaching others how to live holy lives. We have to learn. We have to learn as people of God that God wants to change culture. And the way he changes culture is by changing you and I. And one of the things that has to go out is this idea that we can't be vocal. It's what the enemy's trying to do. Put a mask over your face. 
Don't talk to people. Just, just get through it. We're going to get through it. We're just, we'll be safe in our buildings, you know, and, and, and nothing will happen to us in here. And you know what? We tried to do that. We've spread out the chairs. We've done all these kind of things, and I'm not equating. I'm just using it as an example. All I'm saying, we tried to keep the COVID out, but it still got in. You hear what I'm saying? Just keep it out. Just keep it out. Well, I'm going to tell you something. By trying to keep something out, you're compromising. You're becoming ineffective. So what do we have to do? We have to be strong in the Lord, strong in the Word, and in the power of His might. And we have to not compromise what God says is true. I said, going back to the LGBTQ, he said, are you saying that that's wrong? No, the Bible says it's wrong. The Bible teaches it's wrong. Well, you'll never get them in here if you teach that. I'm not trying to get them in here. I'm trying to get them saved. And if we tell them it's okay, there's no reason to get saved. And then when we stand before the Lord one day and he says, have you done what I asked you to do? Will we be able to say, yes, I don't believe so. And he won't be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. He didn't say, tell them my truth, whether they believe it. I mean, uh, if they believe you, he said, tell them my truth, whether they believe you or not. Right? Now, once again, I'm just using one particular issue. Lots of issues out there on the horizon. But one thing we need to understand is that Jesus doesn't compromise. He loves, but he is the word. He is the standard. He is truth. I am the way and the truth and the life and no man comes to the Father except through me.